going into verse 29 to 45. It's a long section. We're working through it together. Uh, as you're working your way that way, if you have read the book of Daniel this past week for the very first time, we would love to see your hand go up and say, I read it. Anybody? One. Get out there. We got one? Just one? 65. There's 10 more of you out there. We need to hit 75. So if you haven't read the book, please take some time this week and just read through the book. We'd love to see that. Um, it's not that we just have to have a scoreboard full of people, but I know it's a blessing. Um, you might have taken our second option, and you came up with one word to describe every single chapter, all 12 chapters of the book of Daniel. If you've done that little project and want to share it with us today, we'd love to hear it. Anybody here this morning? That's been a rough week. No? Okay. None on that. Okay. Memorizing. That was the third option. Memorizing five verses from the book of Daniel. Any ones you want? Anybody have a verse or so to share with us? Oh, it's terribly quiet. No? Okay. Well, we have one person read through the book. That's good. So we'll take uh, even the little victories, won't we? So uh, there's your challenge for this week. Uh, if you haven't read through the book of Daniel, please take some time to do that. We encourage that highly. Uh, if you'd like to go through it and give one word to summarize each chapter, that would be a fun. A lot of people have done it already. Fourteen others have done it. So we'd encourage you to try that. Or just memorize some verses. And you may say, well, I have trouble with that. I get stage fright when you ask me to say that in front of everybody. Two people wrote them out for me and handed them to me, and I appreciate that just as much. Uh, they took the time to do that, and you can do that too, all right? Uh, I wouldn't mind that at all, but I just love to have God's Word planted in our minds and in our hearts, and the only way that happens is if we read it. We've got to learn it, so I encourage you to do that. So uh, we're going into our, our topic again today. Uh, uncompromising, a study of Daniel in the book of Daniel, plus all the chapters that go with that, and we're here in chapter 2, the prophecy section. We're going to be using our overhead again in, in just a little bit, but uh, a resolution to follow God and obey him regardless of the consequences of living in a pagan world. I keep bringing that up to you, saying trust God regardless. Daniel is a stellar example of that as we are learning of him in this passage. Uh, I don't know what kind of stress he had. We understand he might have been about 16 years old, standing before the most powerful king on the whole planet. And uh, that king was one who, with just one gesture or maybe one word, can have somebody put to death. That's pretty intimidating. <laughs> Stressful. The other day, we were at the child's market. And we got a stress ball. And I found out it's not rated for an o o o Ohio 
State Notre Dame game. <laughs> Two minutes to the end, that thing blew up in my hand. I must have really been going at it because there's beads all over the back room of our house. It just had boosh. So it didn't have a warning on there not to use it during football games. But uh, Daniel didn't have a stress ball with him. He was in intense. I, I bring this up before you because these words are just not words. Trust God regardless. And this man was not just a, a flannel graph figure in Old Testament Sunday school class. He was a real individual, and if you put yourself in his sandals and try to understand his experience as a captive, as a 16-year-old, I keep using that number, I think that's a pretty good estimate, as one who is standing before the most powerful king on the planet, and he's going to declare a message to him that nobody else could. That's pretty impressive. Very impressive. And trusting God regardless, not only in that experience, but in the message that he also had to share. Heavenly Father, help us as we walk our way through this passage again today. Guide us in our thoughts, but bring us to your throne over and over and over again, that we might learn to trust you regardless, too. Um, take the challenges of our lives and set them there at your feet and know that you're in control and that these things, um, these things bring us close to you. Thank you, Lord, for your care for us, for the work you're doing in our lives, each and every one, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we go into this passage, we're about to read it here, so I'll have your Bibles open, Daniel chapter 2, right at verse 29 there. Um, Daniel, I don't know, I only tried to assume what he must have been thinking or experiencing in his day. He is a captive taken off to Babylon. He's in training to be a Babylonian leader. Uh, we know that from chapter number 1, especially but I was wondering, and maybe there's no real answer for this, but I wonder how many times he thought, how long is this going to last? When am I going to get to go home? You know, that was an interesting question that I was, had in my mind as I was going through that. Because if his dreams of going home soon was on his heart, he found out that this prophecy that he is explaining about kingdoms and how they concern him and his people, there would be four kingdoms, not just one. And these four kingdoms would all come in some sort of order before the final kingdom, which we're going to understand to be the kingdom of the Messiah, would follow and remove all of those. But that's going to introduce a phrase that we will use in the book of Daniel called the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles involve those four kingdoms. And the time of the Gentiles started 2,600 years ago, and they're still going on. If Daniel was thinking, oh, I might get to go home next week, these visions don't say that. This is a long duration of God at work. 2,600 years already. Already. And we're not sure when it will completely be over because we don't know when the Lord will be coming again. 
We believe we're on the verge of the rapture. I certainly do. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, but even after that, there is still seven more years of the times of the Gentiles. It's not over yet. And that's about the dominance of these groups over the people of Israel. So I just want to remind you, as we go into the book of Daniel 2 and look at these verses again, that we are standing in Daniel's sandals looking at these things. We're trying to understand them as he would have understood them with very limited information except what God gave him. And so I'm trying not to be imaginative and add to them and, and give you uh, the things that some people like to throw into all their prophecy conferences and make it sound so exciting and everything else. It is exciting, but I'm not going to use my imagination to explain things that aren't there in the text. But also, I do know that this is in reference to Israel and God's plan for his people. It's not about the church. So I am not teaching the rapture in Daniel. Just so you know, it's not in 6, it's not in 2, it's not in chapter 9, it's not there. Because it's not about the church, it's about God's people Israel and what God intends for them. And it is, it is all about faith. It's all about faith and trusting God. Even when the world is being ruled by the heathen, we have to trust him. Notice I used we suddenly. wonder why. It seems like our world is being ruled by those that don't believe in our Lord and don't trust him and do not present the things that are true to our God at all. We're going to find a lot of application here, but what we will especially see is that every single one of these kingdoms we will talk about will fail. They will fail. Ultimately, they will come to an end when the Messiah's kingdom is established. That is true. And that we know for sure, so we're excited about that. So I'm going to use our PowerPoints again. I'm going to slide over here so I don't blind myself and uh, use this podium for a little bit. But let's go into the passage. Uh, Daniel chapter 9, or 2, verse 29. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I did before. I read the whole thing uh, several times. And so I'm going to actually start in verse 31, and I'm going to end with the first part of 39 today. It says in verse 31, You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great image. That image, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was rising up in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of the image was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, the legs, its legs of iron and its feet partially of iron and partially of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floor, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was a dream. Now we will say its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men inhabit, or the beast of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has made you rule with power over them all. You are the head of gold. 
But after you, there will rise another kingdom inferior to you. Stop right there. That's what we're going to look at today. Verse 39, or as we used to say, 39A. It's just the first half. All right, we got a statue. We're going to work with our statue here. Are you, O king? We're looking, and behold, there was a single great image. It was awesome. It was extraordinary in splendor. Now, we can try to picture what that's like to be standing there and looking up and seeing this enormous statue in front of your eyes. It's not just big. Perhaps it was uh, very, very, very large. But it was impressive. Had a head of gold. It had a chest of silver. It had the thighs of bronze. It had the legs of iron. The feet were iron and clay mixture. It was awesome to behold. He was watching this sight without any description being given with it. God was not speaking in that uh, dream. He did not say what Nebuchadnezzar was seeing. It was like watching, like I said, watching a movie without the sound turned on. He could only guess, and he didn't even know what that meant. So that's why he called in the others to tell him what it was all about. Uh, he just saw this enormous statue, impressive statue. It had to mean something. So that's why he called in people to interpret for him. Suddenly, there was a stone. Let's try slide two. We remember this guy. A stone. <laughs> we don't know its size. We don't know much else about it, except this stone was cut out without hands. It was uh, shocking to the dream to see a statue as magnificent was, as it was, but even more shocking was the fact that the stone crushed the statue. And he says in verse 34, you continued looking into a stone, was cut out without hands, and it struck the image on its feet. I like this next picture. We could go to that one. Struck it on its feet, but it hit it in such a way that all of it shattered from the feet all the way up to the head. The gold, the silver, the bronze, the, the entire statue was crushed and turned to powder. And then it blew away. That was unusual. That was pretty stunning, especially if you're impressed with the statue and now the statue is shattered and gone. So he sees this part of the vision as well. The chap, the wind, blows it away, and there's nothing left. The statue is completely gone off the scene. But now there's a stone, and this stone starts to grow. And that's highly unusual, too. But the stone that, whatever size it was, it says it's, it's, it became a great mountain, and it filled the whole earth. It grew in size. And we've got another slide just to kind of give a picture of that. Uh, it's growing in size, so it covered the whole earth. It's a pretty big stone. But this is an impressive statue and an unusual stone. That was the dream. That was the dream. It would have been kind of fun if we never had the interpretation. Because to this day, we'd be guessing, wildly guessing, what did that mean? We wouldn't know. But that's why the interpretation was given. God gave this to him. 
And so we're going to go with what God said, not what we want it to say. Okay? So as we start to work through verse 36 through 43, he gives the description of what the statue means and all the rest. There are four kingdoms here. Four kingdoms are mentioned. He said these four kingdoms are part of the statue. Verse 37 and 38 is kingdom number one. Verse 39, the first part is kingdom two. Verse 39, part B, is kingdom three. And verse 40 to 43 is kingdom four. But kingdom four is going to have a slightly interesting twist to it because it will be a divided kingdom, uh, partially hard and partially brittle. But each part of the statue represents a different kingdom. Going in descending order, starting at the top and working your way down, you're looking at these, uh, these kingdoms. And it talks a little bit about their nature. It gives you a little description about what they're at. What's interesting is that they're not named as a name. But God gave us enough information in verse 36 that we can start with the first one and know who it is. Verse 36, this was a dream. Now we will say its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, the glory, and wherever the Son of Man inhabit or beast of the field or birds of the sky, he's given them to your hand, made you rule with power over them all. You are the head of gold. This kingdom belongs to Nebuchadnezzar. This kingdom is called Babylon. We were able to walk through that pretty simple. We talked about it last week. Uh, you are the king of kings. You are the head of gold. That's powerful. <laughs> you subdue the whole world, the nations, and all the rest in warfare. That's powerful. But you, king, have everything because God gave it to you. And that's very important to note in this. In verse 37, uh, he says, this power, this glory, this kingdom, all this is from the God of heaven who gave it to you. Don't ever forget that kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall because of our God. He's in charge. Sometimes we forget that when we're reading the news, don't we? God is in charge. He gives the kingdoms to exist and he takes it away when he wants the power is given by God. He's given them into your hands, verse 38 says. He made you to rule with power over them all, it says in verse 38. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar couldn't take credit for his successes, and he finds out when he tries, he gets in trouble. We're going to find that out later. But uh, notice that their, king, their, king, their first kingdom, the Babylonian kingdom, starts like gold. Top. The best. As far as man is concerned, it's the best. And we see he's the head and all these things. And looking from Daniel's statue uh, and from his perspective, you can't beat Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. That's very impressive. So we go to chapter 2, verse 39, and we introduce the second statue. In verse 39a, this is rather impressive. Uh, but after you will arise another kingdom inferior to you. That's it. For all that he said about Babylon, he doesn't say much about this, does he? One thing we note is it's a kingdom. 
Another thing we know, it's not as, as uh, powerful. Powerful's a good word. It's inferior in every way. You could probably guess it probably is. Now, it's not given a name. There's no identity markers here, except that it comes after you. After you. Now, it's easier for us, standing on this side of history, to look back and say, well, I know who it is. But what's also great is that there's other verses in the book of Daniel that helps with it, too. And it's not said here, but when we get to chapter 5, about seven or eight months from now, we'll be able to say, who is this? So I can give you the preview because there will be a while and you might forget it anyway. So <laughs> Daniel chapter 5. Let's go over there for a minute. Verse 25 to 31. Daniel 5. Daniel 5. Go to 25. It says, now this is the inscription that was written out. Many, many, tekel yifarsin. This is an interpretation of the message. Many, God has numbered your kingdom and put it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed and on the scales and found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. And then it goes to the very end of this in verse 30. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, the Babylonian king, was slain, so Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. So we know historically who followed Babylon. It was a kingdom called the Medes and the Persians. This dream does not tell you much else. Not much at all. It says we add to it with the visions to follow that we're going to bundle it all up and then we'll see what what is said about this kingdom. But as far as this kingdom is concerned, it is inferior to Babylon. Inferior. Now, I don't think that's just materials. I, I, I could only guess uh, when I start working with some of this. Silver is considered inferior to gold in many ways, uh, at least in man's opinion. If somebody walked up today and offered you an ounce of gold or an ounce of silver, which would you take? Yeah, you'd be doing good. Gold for an ounce the other day was about $2,000 an ounce. Silver was running for $23 an ounce. But if you're working with a three-year-old, you might convince them to take the silver because it's shiny too. Now, I'm going to bring a map up before you here. We're going to pop this up here because it's kind of useful when you're talking about media. Uh, or the Median Empire, you may say, what's that? We don't have a Media Empire that we know of on our maps today. And uh, so this map here, this, this greenish area, is a Babylonian Empire. And notice it stretched way down into Judah and all the way into Egypt. That's Nebuchadnezzar's domain. He controlled an awful lot. The Medes were of this empire just north of Babylon and made its way all the way down here toward the Persian Gulf. Alam was part of that, uh, somewhat. But this, this region here is the Median Empire. And the, media is, the Median Empire is an interesting group. Um, 
we don't have a lot of their history given to us in scripture. Not like some other nations. We could trace them way, 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 way back. Uh, the Medes will cover about 200 years of biblical history. It's not a whole lot compared to the rest of them. Um, it's mentioned that the Assyrians and the Assyrian Empire, Nineveh was the capital, so it, it would have been up in this vicinity up here where media, uh, the title is on the page here. The Assyrians dominated the Medes from somewhere around 836 BC to all the way into the 600 BCs. Uh, Assyria dominated everybody. <laughs> they were just that powerful. And um, it wasn't until about 614 BC that uh, Media finally had the upper hand and conquered uh, Asher, the capital city of Syria, one of the capital cities. And then they joined forces with Babylon. There's Asher right there. They formed forces with Babylon and captured Nineveh in 612 BC. That's where the Medes come in. They, they piggybacked on Babylon for a while in order to succeed. And so for the next 70 years, Babylon is going to dominate. The Medes had helped them win the battle over the Assyrians, but the Medes could only attach themselves with political ties and marital ties and, and different fashions like that. They just hung on there for most of the Babylonian captivity time, that 70 years, they were just part of it. They were just helping, assisting in that. But as it got closer to the end, about 10 years before Babylon would end up being destroyed, the Persians started to gain power. Now, Persia was off on this side. And Persia and the, the territory of Lam and Susa with the capital, they started to gain their strength as well. And guess what? The Medes said, hey, we're going to hitch a ride with them for a while. And so they switched their allegiance from Babylon over to Persia. And suddenly you got the Medes and the Persians and their strength coming together. And a guy by the name of Cyrus II, the leader of the Persian armies, used the Medes' strength and the Persians' strength, and they defeated Babylon in 539 B.C. That's the kingdom that would be falling, and that's the inferior kingdom that's going to take their place. In 539 B.C., we have the kingdom of Babylon falling to the Medes and the Persians. And they're going to last a good while. They're going to stay as a kingdom till 331 B.C. And 331, that's almost 200 years later, 331, uh, the Greeks are going to take their place in history, too. Now, you may say, well, okay, we got that in history, but where's the record of that in Scripture? Outside of Daniel, what would we find? Well, in Isaiah, interestingly enough, several hundred years before, God gave prophecy concerning the Medes. And here we're going to take you to Daniel chapter 13, or Isaiah 13 for a minute. Isaiah chapter 13. That's quite a little ways back in your Old Testament, but you're going to see them. Isaiah 13 starts in verse 17. 175 years before the Medes and the Persians defeat Babylon. This is written, Isaiah 13, verse 17. Behold, 
I am going to stir up the Medes against them who will not value silver or take pleasure in gold. And their bows will mow down the young men. They will not even have compassion on the fruit of the wound, nor will their eye pity children. And Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans prized, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Picture that. 175 years before, the Medes weren't even considered contenders for the crown. And God says, oh, but the day will come. Babylon will be punished by the Medes. The Medes by name are mentioned there in Isaiah chapter 13. And by the way, he's not done with it there either. Um, he says it there. He says it in, in 317, 319. You just saw the other one, as God will overthrow them. But Jeremiah also brings it up. In Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 11, it says, uh, concerning the Medes, Make bright the arrows, gather the shields. The Lord um, hath raised up the spirit of the king of the Medes for his devices against Babylon to destroy it because it is a vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance of his temple. So Babylon was predicted to fall by the hand of the Medes, God's avenging instrument. I find that interesting because so many times when we think of history and we go through it and we say, wow, the Babylonians had a bad night. They made a mistake. They left something unwatched. There was, you know, there was a problem with that. But God had predicted it. God said it was going to happen. So when Daniel is looking at this vision, if he had thought through, because he was a man who read scripture, he certainly read Jeremiah. But if he had gone back and traced this, and he sees Babylon on the throne, by name, God said, the Medes would destroy them. I don't know how that looked the day Daniel was telling this dream to him, but I wonder if it was going through his head. Ah, oh, the kingdom after you. Oh, yeah, Babylon's not eternal. Babylon's not eternal. Now, when we talk about the Medes, the Persians, we talk about that silver part of the statue up there in the left-hand picture. We, we sometimes refer to it as, as two arms. And sometimes we go to, to the extremes and try to identify, well, if there's two arms, there's two parts. So one is a Mede and one is a Persian. And we could go into all kinds of talk like that. But then the, the Romans have two legs and they have ten toes and they have toenails on the toes too. And we never talk about the toenails for some reason. But uh, when we talk to these, sometimes we can say, well, is that true? Is that true? Is this what it means? Um, the Medes and the Persians, if you use the arms, could also have meant that's God's working parts to accomplish his affairs in history. It's what God does. Not only were the Medes used to punish but I want to give something to you here this morning that's not often said. But the Medes and the Persians were also used by God to restore. They were meant to restore Israel back to their land. Seventy years the kingdom would be uh, captive. Judah and Israel would be captive to the Babylonians. But what at the end of 70 years? 70 years. What was God's plan? The second kingdom of the four 
will be the kingdom that God finds useful to turn the Jewish people back home. Turn them back home. It would be a guy by the name of Cyrus, the Persian king, who will suddenly decide, let's send them back and let them build their temple. And they went back to build a temple. And later it was another Persian king who said, and let them build their walls as well. And let them build up their city. Daniel would live into that Mede and Persian empire. By the way, it was a Mede who decided that Daniel's punishment for praying was the lion's den. So we will get into that part in chapter 4 or 5 or so. But if you put down the history of the Medes and the Persians, you have to realize, not only does Daniel mention it, and there's parts of that in his life, but the whole book of Ezra is under the authority of the Medes and the Persians. The whole book of Nehemiah is under the, the, the times of the Medes and the Persians. The book of Esther, you know that book. Guess where she lived? She lived in Persia during the times of the, king, of the Medes and the Persians. Haggai the prophet... Zechariah the prophet, Malachi the prophet, they were all recorded during the times of the Medes and the Persians. They had their context in the Medo-Persian Empire. So the key to the Babylonian Empire in Gentile domination was over Jerusalem. The key to the empire of the Medes and the Persians is to restore them back to their land. God used them to shield them, to protect them. Remember the story of Esther? We could have wiped out the whole Jewish uh, family at that point. But God used those times with the Medes and the Persians to restore the people as well. They're going to endure through the rest of the recorded Old Testament. That's how long the Medes and the Persians are going to be around. The last book, Malachi, was written during the Medes and the Persians. I've already said that. Um, so many times, and this is what I want to put in perspective for you for a minute. Many times when we consider political or geographical powers, we see them as being aggressive. We see them as being excessive. Sometimes we just call them evil. Nations that are strong, that assume that uh, uh, they have control of the whole world, that uh, because they're the top dog, they must be vicious, they must be terrible people to have in charge. Uh, many times we conclude that uh, nations like that, it'd be better off if God just wiped them off the planet and made life easier for everybody if he got rid of such people like that. It would be nice if you're being oppressed that, that would God would do that. However, it's not uncommon that God would take nations of that very same description and use them to correct his people, to encourage his people to draw closer to him, to provide for his people to match his sovereign plan. Nobody would have thought highly of Egypt during the days of Moses and how they mistreated the Jews. We read about that in Exodus, don't we? Most of the time when we read that, we say, well, that's a terrible thing. Uh, Egypt was so cruel, uh, what they did to Israel at that time. But what did God do? He put 
his people in Egypt to keep them from mingling with the Canaanites and becoming a non-entity as a nation. Israel wasn't ready for warfare, so God didn't put them into conflict with the Canaanites. Israel was not capable of inhabiting the entire country that God had given to Abraham. The land was too much, and there were only 70 of them. So God used a little incubator called Egypt, put them under the dominance of them to teach them how to be strong and how to endure, and yet at the same time, let them grow and let them grow. They went in as 75 people. They came out as 2 million. God used Egypt for the benefit of his people. It didn't feel like it, I'm sure. And they probably didn't think very highly of Babylon either. When they were punished by Babylon because they were sinful people, Habakkuk had a lot of trouble with that. You remember? Habakkuk said, God, why did you pick them? They're the worst people on earth. Why are you punishing us with the Babylonians? And God says, well, I'll teach you a lesson. The just shall live by faith. Trust me. Babylon has a purpose, and Daniel lived in Babylon and left us with a sterling example how to trust God regardless while living under pagan rule. If Daniel hadn't been in Babylon, I don't know that we'd have this book <laughs> or we would have this understanding of what it means to trust God. And so when you come back down to the rest of the story, the Medes and the Persians also had their place in God's plan. That kingdom was established. That kingdom gave in dominance. That kingdom saved lives during the days of Esther. It was given permission to the people to build their temple, which, by the way, later the sandals of Jesus himself will walk through. This is what God has been using the Medes and the Persians for. For such a time they were put there, and all the lesson came back to is this. Trust God in this. Trust God in this. Trust him regardless. We don't know what's coming our way with the world powers around us. We could speculate. We could anticipate the rapture, which we do. But until then, we live as God's people in an ungodly world. Do you know that? We live in that environment. And sometimes we would say, Lord, we got to change the environment. And maybe all the while, God's saying, no, I'm trying to change you. I want you to trust me. Walk close to me. I know what I'm doing. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? There's value in this kingdom that we're studying here. Not much is said. It's just inferior, and it's coming after. And we're going to build on that as we keep going. But that's enough for us to say, oh, God has a plan. God has a plan. These people have a purpose. Can we trust him in that? Daniel had to. Can we trust him with where we are today in our world? Yes, we can. And that's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to do. Trust God regardless. We're going to try the third kingdom next week. Unless the Lord raptures us up, and then I won't teach this next week. Or let him tell you. It's even better. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness to us in giving us even glimpses 
I know the kingdoms intrigue us and the powers and the colors and the medals and all the rest, they all intrigue us to try to understand. But what I like most of all is that this is something you have designed. It's something that you have called us to understand to the degree that you are sovereign. These kingdoms have to obey the shoreline. They cannot go beyond what you've set up. They cannot be more than what you designed them to be. And Lord, everything you design that we have learned of in the past has been for our good too. It's taught us to trust you. It's showed us again your power, your control. And we have things in our life that seem big, overwhelming, challenging, and, and hard to understand. But one thing we're told throughout scripture is that we are to live by faith. And I pray, Lord, that we start to put that into practice. If that's our big struggle, Lord, work in our hearts today. You say that the just shall live by faith. We want to be those who do that very thing. Challenge us with little passages, too. Just remind us again that you are God, and you're a God who loves us. And we thank you, Lord, for that. In Jesus' name, amen.